On today's episode, do you remember that time Godzilla threw a bus into Puff Daddy's apartment? We're covering Puff Daddy and Jimmy Page. Come with me for the 1998 film Godzilla. Let's start the pod. Hello and welcome to The Song Will Go On, the podcast inspired by the songs, inspired by the motion pictures. I'm Paolo Grassini, and joining me today, she's an NYU graduate who broke the story when she found Godzilla hiding in the NYU campus. It's Sofia Matano. That was a big get for me. That was a scoop? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Today's guest, an expert in 90s movie nostalgia. I mean, his Twitter banner is a touchstone picture slow. Come on, it's Jackson Boren. What's up, Jackson? Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Oh man, no, thank you for coming. We're so excited. We I tell Sophie, if I could hire someone to run a social media account for me, <laughs> I would just say, do what Jackson Boren does. Cause so many times I see you're like, oh my God, we're on the same wavelength. <laughs> yeah, I'm just obsessed with stuff from the 90s that we grew up with that we forgot about. And you know those, you know those times when you're searching online or you're on Twitter and you you see something and it unlocks a memory or it unlocks yes. something that you were really into that you kind of forgot about. That is kind of the content and the experience that I, I live for online. So I love having those kinds of moments and being able to share those with other people who are, you know, into movies and music and, and pop culture from the 90s and the 80s. Oh, man. Speaking of things from the 90s that I forgot about, I'm really sorry to do this to you guys, but uh, I just lost the game. What? You didn't play the game? The game? Yeah, the game. No, I thought you were talking about David Fincher's movie. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> okay, well, basically, we're always playing the game. And you lose the game when you think about the game. And then you have to tell everybody that you lost. And then they lose. Uh, you, oh, my God. Sophie. I'm shocked. This happens so many times where Sophie says something like, she thinks it's like a global phenomenon, and then it's like a Bay Area. No, uh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> I, I won't take it this time. I'm not editing this out. Like, <laughs> I want to know what people think. Chime in if you know what the game is. Come on, guys. No. I need your help. All right. So, Jackson, I got to ask you, out of all the 90s movies, why this one? And why this song, more importantly? The reason I chose this song was not because I love the movie Godzilla 1998, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone there, uh, even on this podcast, but because both the song and the film are like these crystallized artifacts from a time in which movies were marketed so differently than they are now. The song is just this exercise in stunt marketing that created this explosive moment uh, in pop culture that you just couldn't ignore and just feels intrinsic to the movie and to 1998. You know, the internet and how we consume pop culture has changed so much over the past, you know, 20 years or so since this movie came out. And so when I think about 1998, we had this monoculture where we just experienced everything the same way and through the same channels. So it wasn't just a summer movie. It was a cultural event. And that's where I landed on Godzilla and Come With Me. There's many reasons we started the podcast. 
But one of the angles that we are fascinated is that, like you were saying, movies were marketed in a different way, a lot of big budget, and given the right amount of money and circumstances, artists, I mean musicians, did some really weird shit when it comes <laughs> to movie soundtracks that they otherwise would not have done in their career. So that's sort of like one genre of the song will go on. You can say like, remember that time this person did this really weird shit? And it's one of the most fun corners of movie soundtracks there is. So I can't wait to start exploring this, but we can't do anything else before we talk about its creator, the movie. Alive, it's alive, it's alive. This time it's like fitting because we we're talking about a monster movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Finally, yeah. Sophie, right? It makes sense for you. Yeah. <laughs> Sophie's not a fan of that bit, but we'll see how long I can keep it going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sophie, something we're both a fan of is your fucking masterpiece of a movie setup. <laughs> and we need one from you now. Come on, let's go. Well, uh, I tried my best. All right. Godzilla is a 1998 American monster movie directed and co-written by Roland Emmerich. It's a reimagining of the Japanese Godzilla, or Gojira, property, and it's the 23rd movie in the franchise. Shit, 23rd. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> no wonder, um, there's some record labels right now releasing Godzilla on vinyl. Mm -hmm. And it's like every week there's a new one. And I just like, when are they going to run out? Now I get it. Like, yeah, now we're you at know 23 why. <laughs> in 98. So, yeah. 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 Um, but this is the first one to be completely produced by a Hollywood studio. The film stars Matthew Broderick, Jean Renault, Maria Patillo, Hank Azaria, among others. So let's get into the plot of this movie. Um, is there one? <laughs> uh, well, you'll be the judge. Just like Godzilla, the plot hides for half of the yeah. movie. <laughs> so, when an iguana nest in French Polynesia is exposed to radiation during a military nuclear test, an enormous monster is created, which attacks a Japanese fishing boat. The lone survivor of the attack dubs the monster Godzilla. So Jackson, we have a question for you. <laughs> Is Godzilla French? In this movie, his origin is tied to the French. Yeah. My, my feeling is that when they made this movie, because the original Godzilla Toho films that came before this were all tied to a very sort of Japanese experience right. and perspective on nuclear warfare and, and all the things that they had tied into that, that when you had an American studio making it, they said, Maybe we should uh, maybe we should put this on somebody else. Maybe we should, <laughs> you know, twist this plot a little bit so it's not so much about uh, in nuclear fallout. Back to the plot, Dr. Nick Tatopoulos, played by Broderick, is recruited by the U.S. government to study the beast. Godzilla travels to the Big Apple, because I guess that's where you go if you want to make it big as a monster. I mean, if you can make it in New York, you can make, you it, can make anywhere. it anywhere, so... <laughs> When Nick discovers Godzilla has a nest filled with hundreds of hatching eggs, he must lead a mission to destroy them to save humanity and the world as we know it. Making the first American Godzilla film was a process. Uh, producer Henry G. Saperstein was hounding Toho, the Japanese film company, to allow this Hollywood picture. Uh, then many Hollywood studios rejected the idea because they thought that the monster was just too campy. They were thinking of the old Godzilla. Jan Devant, director of Speed and Twister, signed on to direct uh, until his budget of 100 to 200 million was rejected. Emmerich joined the project. Uh, he's known for his disaster movies, uh, such as Independence Day, The Day After Tomorrow, 2012, among others. Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio signed on to write the first version of the script. You may recognize their work, like Aladdin, Shrek, and most of the Pirates Wait. of the Caribbean movies. What? Yeah. 
They do work independently, but together they've written those. Uh, ultimately, they got a story by credit as uh, Devlin and Emmerich rewrote the script entirely. They scrapped like, a lot of the original Godzilla tropes, like the fire breathing, which some fans were upset by. Emmerich also scrapped the original Godzilla design and created something new. The protagonist of the film is named after Patrick Tatopoulos, the Godzilla creature designer. Ah, oh, cool. Yeah, they sought approval from the original Godzilla producer and creator, Tomoyuki Tanaka, who gave it a two thumbs up. He stated that the new design kept the spirit of Godzilla. Marketing for the film included uh, attaching a trailer to the Men in Black screenings and a Taco Bell campaign. Is this going to take like half an hour, the marketing included? Well, remember that Taco Bell Chihuahua? <laughs> they don't use that guy anymore, but uh, in the campaign, he tried to trap Godzilla in a box by baiting it with free tacos. This has you to be on YouTube. You can find this on yeah. YouTube. Oh, absolutely. Here's you a little can. clip. I think I need a bigger box. So, like, we're already referencing Jaws, which is very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Godzilla was released in theaters on May 20th, 1998, in a record of 3,310 theaters. Sony expected the film to gross $100 million its opening Memorial Day weekend, which would set a new record. And, um, didn't quite make that. It earned, any guesses, opening weekend? Uh, 55? I... I think it was somewhere in like the 77 range, somewhere somewhere in the high 70s. Maybe this is domestically, but it was 44 million. Oof. Okay. Yeah. Um, so kind of a disappointment there. Uh, and it earned 379 million worldwide against its $125 million budget. So reviews were pretty negative out the gate. Um, it currently has a 16% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Shit, 16? 16, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and its critical yeah. consensus says, I quote, Without compelling characters or heart, Godzilla stomps on everything that made the original or any movie monster worth its salt a classic. Yikes. <laughs> um, Whole lot of yikes. Yeah. Uh, years later, one of the producers pointed to the source of the film's failure as the script rewrite. But this hasn't tarnished the Godzilla brand as movies within the franchise continue to be made. The latest being Godzilla vs. Kong in 2021. And a sequel to that film is slated for 2024. So will I be seeing either of you at the theater for that one? I've actually thought that the more recent legendary Godzilla monster vs. movies have been a, a vast improvement. I mean... They're not all perfect, but I, I watched the Godzilla versus Kong on HBO Max when it came out. And I, you know, it, it was what it was selling. It was a, a big monster movie. You get to see uh, King Kong uh, punch out Godzilla. So, <laughs> Jackson, we got to start off with you. And the first thing is so, all right, talk to me about Godzilla. What is your connection to this? It, it doesn't sound like it's strong. I don't know. It's, it's at least nostalgia driving something like. When I've talked to you, you know, on on Twitter and you, you've seen the stuff that uh, that usually ends up in my feed, I consider myself kind of a nostalgist is the word I've come up with. And I think a lot of that is what's driving this with this movie for me, although the movie itself has lots of problems. My first impression of the Toho Godzilla, I, I didn't have a lot of you know history with it. But if you want to go back and remember in 1992, when they used that original Godzilla in a Charles Barkley Nike campaign. I think I remember. Uh, yeah. Really? Yeah, it was called Godzilla <laughs> versus Charles Barkley. You can find it on YouTube. 
the premise was the two of them uh, going at it. Uh, and Charles Barkley was, you know, the size of skyscrapers, just like Godzilla. Uh, the advertising agency, Wyden and Kennedy and Industrial Light and Magic had created it as a commercial for J- Japanese audiences. Uh, but then they were impressed enough with the final result. It ended up here in the United States as well. Oh, that was my little bit of experience with Godzilla prior to the movie. Hmm. Uh, but then coming to the movie, they had a trailer that came out a whole year before the actual movie. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing this trailer before Men in Black, and I think it was Contact in the summer of 97. Uh, this Great is one film. of those sort of visceral marketing experiences that I remember as a kid. Just It just stands out to you. And it, basically the premise of this trailer that doesn't feature any footage from the finished movie. It was it's its own standalone trailer. Huh. Is there's a, a group of kids on a field trip in a museum in New York, and they come to this big open room, and there's a skeleton of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Oh shit! I remember this. Yes. Yeah, and then and then what happens is out of out of nowhere they start hearing the the thundering sort of pounding of Godzilla's mm-hmm. steps this all comes to a crescendo of Godzilla's foot coming through the the ceiling the glass ceiling and stepping on top of the T-Rex on, on the kid no, no on the uh, the skeleton <laughs> and it smashes the T-Rex skeleton and keeps walking and so already uh, TriStar and Roland Emmerich have come out swinging at Spielberg in the Lost World saying you know you like the Lost World wait till next year because we've got something bigger. Oh, we have a lot to talk about on that end, but I don't want to get ahead so, of myself. But yeah, so so that was the first trailer I remember. The trailer sounds and better the than other the film. Thing, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it might be um, the other thing that I remembered very specifically that we we talked a little bit about is the Taco Bell campaign. Yeah, you know, and the and the marketing campaign that seems sort of ubiquitous for Godzilla. Uh, what I didn't realize until years later is that the studio uh, basically said, we're not going to show Godzilla until the movie comes out or until, you know, we get closer to the release. And so you had all these billboards and bus sides and everything that was all Godzilla, but they couldn't show him. Mm -hmm. So they used all of these messages of like on the bus, it would say his foot is this big or on the the billboard on the side of the building, it would say he's taller than this building. (laughs) And they would use all these things to give people, a concept of Godzilla's scope and size without actually showing him. Do you remember this stuff? They were like, we can't show it because it looks like shit. So let's just put some <laughs> fonts here and say. Exactly. Yeah. And do you, you know, so, so then they ended up having the Taco Bell campaign and they had these, they had these uh, cup holders that were uh, Godzilla cup holders that would go in your window of your car oh. and you'd put oh. your cup in it. Do you remember <laughs> you are- that? It will come up again in a category. <laughs> okay. Uh, in a category okay. questions. But yes, yes. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was the reveal of the monster. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how you both first saw the monster? Was it in the movie or, or was it beforehand? Yeah, it was a few days ago when I watched <laughs> this for the first time. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay, because for me, uh, I have the most dated uh, experience seeing this for the first time. You, you, you go back yeah. to 19, uh, 1998. You're not seeing this on the on the internet. You're not seeing this on Twitter or something like the way you would find out this sort of thing nowadays. Mm-hmm. I first remember seeing Godzilla on the the front page of the inter- entertainment section of the Los Angeles Times. Huh. So this was in a newspaper, a black <laughs> and white photo of Godzilla, like it was a major news story. 
And this is such a specifically dated experience for me. I remember the reveal being sort of underwhelming and I didn't hate the design, but I also wasn't in love with it. And I was just like, I was okay with it. But it was one of those things I remember thinking, well, this doesn't look like the Godzilla I've grown up seeing. Right. And then the thing is that even a week or so after design was revealed, I remember still being on board for the movie because I knew it was the guys who did Independence Day. Mm-hmm. The Independence Day alien didn't have the best design, but the way they had the way they had done it was still worked out. You know, the the movie ended up being a success. I, I knew that they had the charisma of the actors, the effects, the miniatures, the action. It all ended up working out, even though you didn't have a great alien design. So I was like, maybe they can pull this off again. Maybe Emmerich and and Devlin uh, can do this one more time. So yeah, that was sort of my initial impression. Sophie. What was your impression a couple of, a week ago when you saw this for the first time? Uh, yeah, so I, I never saw this movie at the time. I, I, I obviously knew about the movie. Um, and then when I got, a, but I was maybe a little bit young to see a disaster movie or, or a monster movie like that, of that scope. I definitely wouldn't have gone to the theater. So by the time it like showed up at the video rental stores, maybe I sort of knew its reputation. And I just skipped this one. All, all the tapes were available. It wasn't like rented yeah. out. You're like, eh. They're like, please <laughs> that, rent That was this. the best critic back in the day. No one's renting this shit. <laughs> I wonder what the perspective is for, for people who are like much younger now and hearing about Godzilla in 1998. Like, is this campy? Is this one of those like, it's so bad, it's good? Well, Sophie, how was it watching it? Was it? <laughs> I wish I could say it was so bad it was good, but it was sort of just underwhelming i was definitely underwhelmed yeah. yeah and for for me i think i was 14 when i saw it mm-hmm. and i should have loved it because i was the prime demographic i was you know loved jurassic park loved the lost world and i was all on board with independence day and what these guys had done and at the time i didn't hate it but it just didn't blow me away mm-hmm. uh like the other films from that summer or some other, you know, big blockbusters, it was just okay. And I think that was a red flag when you're a 14 year old kid at, at Godzilla. You know, I'm normally very forgiving of movies that many others consider bad. Uh, like I still enjoy the Phantom Menace. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not uh, shy on Twitter about saying I'm a massive Waterworld fan. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Uh, if that tells yeah, you anything. That's your description. The world's only yeah, Waterworld or biggest or only. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, but the Godzilla, I think, makes too many mistakes to ignore. One of the biggest movies genres, I feel like, that ruled the 90s were disaster movies. They were pretty big in the 70s. That was like Towering Inferno, Earthquake, Poseidon Adventure. And they completely went into hiding like Godzilla in New York, apparently, through the (laughs) 80s. There was nothing. But shit, did they come back in the 90s? Like, we blew some shit up in the 90s. Like, Twister... You mentioned Independence Day, Armageddon. I mean, shit, even Titanic, Volcano, Dante's Peak, Deep Impact, yep. Daylight, and of course Godzilla. And I just, I, I've always remembered this movie. I remember it when it came out. It was a huge fucking deal. Did you guys read the relationship that this one has to Twister? No, by all means. So when Jan de Bont was originally attached to direct Godzilla, um, he wanted to have Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton as his leads. <gasps> And then when when they finally, you know, split ways and TriStar said, well, you know, we're not going to approve your budget. He left the project and went to go do Twister and he pulled uh, Paxton and Helen Hunt into that into that movie. 
Well, that's too bad because I mean, too bad for this movie because they have way more chemistry than our than our leads oh, yeah. do. Yes. Oh yeah. 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 Before we get before we get to the the chemistry, I just want to sort of touch on one thing Jackson said because it was perhaps like my biggest note that I have. And my second favorite movie of all time is Jurassic Park. And I couldn't stop thinking about Jurassic Park while I was rewatching this movie. It's just so fucking obvious the connections here. And I, I honestly would not be surprised if the train of thought on the studio was, holy shit, Godzilla? It's like a giant T-Rex? So we can just have a movie just of the T-Rex attacking New York. Amazing. And someone goes, and then another, I'm pretty sure another executive went like, what about Velociraptors? Those were a huge hit. Fuck. Love Velociraptors. True. Baby Godzilla. That's it. We have him. And they're going to be in Madison fucking Square Garden. Boom. Budget approved. Like It's trying to be Jurassic Park, basically, this movie. And nobody told them they need first a plot for film. <laughs> but also good, good VFX. Like, it's, it's astounding how, how many times I have to throw Jurassic Park in movies that not only from the 90s, but movies that like literally come out five years ago and pinpoint to effects from early 90s in Jurassic Park and how they look better. To me, that, that was one of the things that I was surprising. Like, sure, I remember that the movie didn't have like quite a good plot, but I, I didn't think the VFX will look this bad. One of the things that this movie really had going against it was all the complications that set up the production put it under a really, really stressed timeline. So they had to do all of this in under a year. And beyond that, you also had um, Emmerich admitting to, you know, everyone during and after the film's release that he was not really a big Godzilla fan. He, didn't, <laughs> he wasn't passionate about the source material, didn't really care Godzilla's roots or the, the mythology behind it. He just wanted to make a big uh, blockbuster movie. And when he came on to TriStar and they said, we want a, a director attached to this that'll really give it some flash. He said, well, I'm only going to do this if you let me do it my way. So then they gave him the keys to the city and it all fell apart. And that's how you got the ballooning of the production which is why I think that the script ended up suffering because they rewrote the script and then Emmerich and Devlin were just too wrapped up in the, the ballooning production to, to maintain quality control. You have some of the worst stuff in the film is tied to the poor script. And it's, you have quite a few, you know, cool character actors in this movie that feel like they're just, they're doing the best that they can with a really, really bad script and they just can't pull it off. Having said that, we've talked a lot of shit about the movie, but I have to say, Roland Emmerich movies always have some sort of redeeming quality to it. Like, I, I, no matter how bad they are, it is on the genre of so bad it's good for me sometimes. And I don't know, yeah, I still find some stuff here to enjoy. Like, one of my favorite things about this movie is uh, I love so many cliches, so many tropes. One of my favorites I noticed... Uh, Government flies in on a helicopter to recruit your expertise in order to save the world. <laughs> <laughs> Love me a good helicopter drops in. Love it. Can't get enough of it. Don't ask any questions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they just drop into Chernobyl where Matthew Broderick's like touching everything with his hands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shake your hand. Maybe nice we to should meet. get a different expert. Yeah. Um, <laughs> question for you both. And Sophie, I'll start with you. Uh-huh. What expertise do you have that a government will one day need you to help 
with. Man, putting me on the spot. When is a helicopter going to like drop in and be like, hey, Sophie, are you Sophie <laughs> Montano? <in>. Please. <laughs> uh, oh, man. I think that would, if they needed my help, I don't know what, like testing different potato chip flavors. Oh, yeah. Like that hey, I can handle. We have, That's a good one. Yeah. We have a national <laughs> crisis of potato chips and, and. The answer is always jalapeno. Always. <laughs> well, first off, I'll second. Jalapeno is always the best always, potato chip yeah. flavor. I agree. <laughs> um, secondly, I think that they, you know, the scene would be the government breaking down the door to my office and coming in and saying, quick, we need someone to write the Criterion Collection essay for speed. <laughs> <laughs> and we've, we've scoured the Internet and you seem the most qualified. I mean, literally, that's kind of what we did with you. We like dropped in on a helicopter, be like, "Hey, we're the song will go on podcast, and we need your '90s nostalgia expertise to tackle <laughs> this song." That's so true. And then I just I put on my sunglasses and I said, "I'm in." <laughs> the other thing I was going to mention because you were talking about Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin's movies and some of the things that the the redeeming factors from this movie, and I will say. The things that I liked about this movie really were heavy on the, the the beginning, you know, everything leading up to Godzilla and showing his his journey to New York and the final attack at the end where they finally destroy Godzilla. And I think that's where they lost the thread is you have a movie called Godzilla and you have this whole middle section where you completely let go of Godzilla as a character and <laughs> you start trying to duplicate the Jurassic Park success with these little mini Godzillas, which also, by the way, don't look nearly as cool as the raptors. They they, they actually look, look like bobblehead raptors. Yeah, they got these just... big old heads, and it was just, yeah, just doesn't work for it me. It looks the like same on, a, on a video game when you type the cheat code to make bobblehead for like NBA Jam or something, and like your character now has bobblehead. That's how we did. They, right. The movie typed the cheap code for Godzilla, and now Godzilla has bobblehead. <laughs> the other thing that I noticed, and I don't know if the two of you have noticed this about um, Roland Emmerich's movies, but he used to do this thing in the 90s where he would pair a hero and a nerd together in every movie. In Stargate, he had Kurt Russell and James Spader. <laughs> and then in Independence Day, famously, we have Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum. And so I think he thought he was going to do that again with Jean Reno and Matthew Broderick. And I'm like, no, man, he didn't do it. He, did, he didn't. You know, it wasn't third time the charm. And whereas the cast in Independence Day, you had, you know, Will Smith oozing charisma and Jeff Goldblum is, you know, ringing off science jargon with his, you know, quirky way he does things. And Bill Pullman's given one of the best presidential speeches in film. None of this is happening in Godzilla. All of this is absent. You know, first off, I think Matthew Broderick was wildly miscast. Incredible. I, yeah. I just was not feeling Matthew Broderick in this role. I have a Matthew Broderick related question. Is Matthew Broderick hot in this movie? Because the movie short thinks so. His boss is like oogling after him. And also on the, when he's on the <laughs> TV, his ex-girlfriend's like, oh my God, he looks so good. And I was like... <laughs> we're like looking at each other like what you're right um, uh, this movie was like a big moment in bosses hitting on their employees and two like yeah. drastically different <laughs> reactions from the employees like the yeah. uh the woman is horrified and matthew broderick's like she thinks i'm cute <laughs> maybe the movie was written where they were thinking of casting like a really hot actor and no one bothered like change the dialogues they're like ah yeah sure live it in now we got matthew brother like, ah, he has whatever. charm i mean ferris bueller he has is sexy i, I mean yeah. He, yeah, yeah he has 
charisma. I'm not. I'm. I'm asking the question. I'm just asking. But the movie like really is into Matthew Broderick. As there was some person. swooning over Matthew Broderick. I'll give you that. There is one thing I love about this movie, and it's the rain in it. I have to mm. say, <laughs> I love the rain in this movie. It fucking rains the whole time. And boy, do I love a rainy day <laughs> movie. And also, apparently, I feel like Roland Emmerich is a king of this because we the day after tomorrow also is shit mm-hmm. on a rain. It got me thinking, Mount Rushmore of rain movies. Does this make it? Like, No ha- way. What, what do you have? Do you no have? Way. What's your like? Um, first of all, singing in the rain. But that's just so that's just one scene in the title. It's a good scene. It's like one of the most iconic scenes of American cinema. It is. But also, so before we, I was thinking about, we talked about Jurassic Park a lot. And I have this question for you both. I don't know if you guys know this or, or anyone listening, but I know that nighttime makes VFX look better. And no coincidence, this movie takes place. Every time at night, mm-hmm. um, one of mm-hmm. the flex that Jurassic Park did, one of the impressive things, sure, they have the T-Rex scene at night, but they also have that T-Rex scene during the day. And that was actually yeah. like one of the most impressive parts. Like, oh, shit, it looks good during the day. But also, does rain help with VFX? Because I wouldn't be surprised if that's a thing. And that's why they probably litter this movie with rain and night just to make it easier on them. I, yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if it obscures things a little bit and also it makes everything kind of shiny. And yeah. all the CGI from this period, everything looks really shiny. Just me? Yeah, I I would agree. Yeah. I think that that was something that helped hide the seams in mm-hmm. terms of the special effects is the rain and the and the nighttime uh lighting, but there's there's no excuse for looking at Jurassic Park and the nighttime scenes and then everything that's in Godzilla and seeing the difference in, in quality. I really just think that that came down to a rushed production schedule and just VFX not being able to really be given the proper care and detail it needed. All right. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, yes, it's time to blow some shit up. And specifically <laughs> the song come with me from Godzilla soundtrack. And we're going to get apparently angry about it and rap over everything. So, yeah, come with us. Let's go. We're back with The Song Will Go On and today's song. Yes, Come With Me by Pop Daddy and Jimmy Page from the 1998 film Godzilla. All right, so uh, let's see your song set up. We, we hear your cries. We hear your call. You have our ears. We don't want to see you fall. Come on. Wait, Sophie, should I like drop like a, like a beat and you want to do your song set up with, with, with the beat? Uh, I'm going to say no just for the power. Yeah, I can just like hype you. Come on. Yeah. For the sake of the audience, I have to decline. <laughs> they already get our Patreon song. Godzilla, robot PDD. Blah, blah, blah. No. All right. All right. <laughs> You've had your fun. Come With Me is a song by American rapper Puff Daddy, featuring English guitarist of Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page. It features the Led Zeppelin song Cashmere from their 1975 album, Physical Graffiti. 
sounds familiar. That's just the beginning right there, too. Yeah. So, yes, that makes uh, the second Led Zeppelin appearance on the podcast so far. How do we feel about that? Fucking great. Yeah. I could talk about them every day. Uh, so, Come With Me is written by Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, John Bonham, Sean Combs, and Mark Curry. A little background on Puff Daddy, Puffy, P. Diddy, Diddy, whatever name you know him by is a moniker for Sean Combs. He established Bad Boy Entertainment in his native New York City in 1993 uh, with one of his first big acts of business uh, signing the Notorious B.I.G. He served as a record producer to many greats such as Mary J. Blige, Usher, and TLC, among others. In 1997, under the name Puff Daddy, he recorded his first commercial work as a rapper. His first album, No Way Out, produced multiple hits, including I'll Be Missing You, which was in tribute to Biggie following his murder. In 1998, he won Best Rap Performance by a duo or group and Best Rap Album. Come With Me released that same year. Page approved the cashmere sampling on the track and recorded a new arpeggiated guitar section, which appears after the first two verses. Here it is. Ah, did he? That's not some good vocals. The song features Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine on bass and a 120-piece orchestra. Here's Combs on the process of making a record. Uh, he said, The whole process was legendary. Three of the best record producers of all time collaborating as performers. Man, no butting heads, no egos, just music. God. PDD's like the wrestler of music. He knows how to hype shit up. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> The song performed pretty well on the charts. It peaked at number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot Rap Songs chart <laughs> and number four on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. We we always mention billboards, but we don't know what it actually means. Yeah, I, I, one day I, I have I to know. Google what it actually, <laughs> how they measure a billboard. I know it's important. I just don't know. But it gives you some sort of reference, I guess. Yep, exactly. The music video for the song incorporated Godzilla into the plot and showed clips of the movie. It's also just a super wild ride. I know we're going to talk about it later. We have a to. Work of art. A work of art. <laughs> uh, Puff Daddy and Jimmy Page performed Come With Me live on SNL together and also at the charity event NetAid. Ladies and gentlemen, Puff Daddy featuring Jimmy Page, please. Uh -huh. So uh, here's the bad news. If you want to hear this song that we're going to talk so much about, don't go running to Spotify. Uh, unfortunately, the song has never been made available on streaming services. So you'll either have to track down the CD, <laughs> which I know Paolo would love because he's a big fan of physical media. <laughs> yes, or, I'm greening right now. Yeah. I'm like, ha -ha. Um, or you're just going to have to go to YouTube to enjoy it and watch the music video. All right, Jackson, you definitely picked the song and not the movie. So what is it about this song? man? What's your connection to it? Oh, man. Well, you know, I had to go back to when I started listening to hip hop, probably around 94, 95. And like a lot of people, I was an MTV kid. So I was just, you know, raised watching MTV. So whatever was getting spins there, I was consuming. My introduction to Puff Daddy was through Biggie Smalls videos, like like Sophie mentioned. Uh, he was sort of this glorified hype man just showing up all over in the back background, doing ad libs. and you know, at the time, you know, as, as it went on, I noticed him getting a little bit more visibility and, and being in more songs. And 
he had an ear for hits. So regardless of whether you like him or not, he was doing something wrong, something right. This was what I remember hearing being called the shiny suit era for Puff Daddy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, and if you weren't a fan of what he was doing, I could totally see how you'd reject the whole premise of come with me. Uh, cause he was so unapologetically arrogant and self-promoting. He's this businessman with a microphone, but man, it was just, I feel like when you go back and hear it now, you know, it, it had been a couple of years since I had really listened to the song again. And now I've listened to it a bunch of times in the past week. It's important to contextualize the lead up to come with me in Puffy's career. So he had the third best-selling yeah. single of 97 mm -hmm. with I'll Be Missing You, and he also won a Grammy for it. He was featured on three different songs nominated in the same category that year. Uh, he had the 18th best-selling album of 97, but the second best hip-hop album behind Will Smith. And he also won the Grammy for Best Rap Album in 98 mm -hmm. and was nominated for the Best New Artist. So all these things... You know, just he was kind of at an apex, I think, coming towards this. And can I just go through a, a singles trajectory for you guys real quick? Well, I'm going to do you one better. I'm just going to assist you with what you just said. But here, I'm going to play something. This is okay. a, a, a peak of Didi's Puff Daddy, whatever you want to call him. Yeah. 97, yeah. His, his, his 97 year. From No Way Out, all four of them, no, Victory, this is Victory, I'll Be Missing You, and that was being around the world uh all four of them for from that album you mentioned which is huge also a way to sneak in david bowie once again sophie in the podcast i'm never around the world that. being around the world samples <laughs> uh bowie's less sands mm -hmm. uh so we got him in there but yeah insane insane year insane year like no wonder jimmy page pick up the phone when puff daddy called in 98 um also apparently his son was really big into rap so he like wanted to connect with his son i guess i mean shit That's sweet. The, the, the thing that artists do for connecting with their son the creative works they've done <laughs> just because they wanted to connect with their teenage son but but yeah uh yeah. you hit it right in in the nail uh jackson like 97 puff daddy he had a year man and and what a roller coaster of a year too like his I don't want to say uh, friend because I don't know, but collaborator for sure, Notorious B.I.G., got murdered on March that same year. So it's like his biggest highs and lows in the same year. I cannot, Jesus, uh, what a year. Yeah, and yeah. he has to deal with that as well as then, you know, figuring out how to, you know, honor his friend's legacy, but then also continue the success and and figure out how to, you know, create his own career as a musician and, and then on top of that, you had, you know, other artists, too. It was like Mace and 112 and Faith Evans. And there, he had a whole label underneath him at the same time. So, but yeah, it definitely felt like Come With Me was a crescendo of that. It was, it was coming to the, the apex of that. And it's, and it's funny to me that this song did not open the soundtrack because it has such a bombastic, in-your-face tone that just feels perfect for this movie. It's like... I'm sure they came to Puffy and said, we need your biggest 
stunt song, something that will blow people away. It has to be audacious. It has, it, you know, it has to be excessive. It has to be everything that your career has been building up to over the past 18 months. And he said, okay, I guess I got to call Led Zeppelin. They showed him the Taco Bell prototypes for the Cosby. Like, you got This is what we're dealing with. We want mm -hmm. the music version of this. What do you got, Pug Daddy? Well, yeah. he is such a showman that... He is. He, he approaches, yeah. like, music like a WWE wrestler. Yeah. I, love, I love it. Yeah. He's having so much fun on this song. And, and you can, you know, you can hear in these little ad-libs and stuff. He's, it just... When I, when you see the live performances mm -hmm. of it, you, it's just oh, pairs yes, with it yes. perfectly. It's it's funny because many times I feel like in Hollywood history, the soundtrack of a film is revered in the same light, or even eclipses the the movie on this you know the movie that's being released. Um, but it's a rarity when the music chosen to complement or enhance the movie actually outmatches the film in every way. And I feel like Come with Me is this standout moment that went above and beyond in delivering what Godzilla was supposed to do as a movie. Yeah, so. I, I absolutely agree. This song is larger than life. Yeah. It feels larger than Godzilla. <laughs> At least this movie's Godzilla. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 And I think that we're lucky that the movie didn't hold this song back. <laughs> were you were you so so were you aware of this song before we started recording yes although i feel like just around the time when i really got introduced to diddy was more like producer diddy like making the band era diddy <laughs> making the band. yeah I just, <laughs> which i, just I, I the, watched religiously <laughs> i just thought of the day Chappelle spoof um, sketch yeah. of <laughs> yeah i can't start at least me talking about my personal connection with this song without giving a shout out to my brother because he had this on CD mm. back in 1998. I'm here thanks to him. Uh, we listen to it a lot. We love this soundtrack. I had to ask for his permission to borrow it. That was very important. But as long as I did, could listen to it. And we did a lot. And this was the song. Like, this was the song that we always, like, Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're not in the mood to listen to the whole thing. We just skip to number two and go straight for that. And I am conflicted about this song because on the one hand, I love it. I think it's a masterpiece. <laughs> on the other hand, I ask myself, is this any actually good? And the other question would be, do I like it more than the original? Oh, yeah. And it's maybe. But I'll say like a big, a big caveat. Of course, I don't prefer Pop Daddy's vocals over over plant. Like yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not delusional. But if we're talking about the mix, the instrumentation, like fuck, maybe. Hmm. With that said, I want to give a shout out to what I think it's like the silent hero of this song, and it's Paul Logos. He is the credit engineer and mixer on this song and album. And I mean, just listen to, just listen to the shit. gonna play cashmere mm -hmm. to compare I see, I see what you're going for I'm, I'm not look i'm not saying one is better than the other rather i'm saying there's definitely stuff to appreciate in, com in the come with me version there's a flavor there that if you're into it 
hey, really good, man. It's a really good flavor. I think it, well, it, it is worth saying that Come With Me has a 120-piece orchestra. I don't think, Led, I, don't, I don't know how many <laughs> Led also, Zeppelin has, but. But it's also just like, just like the mix. Again, the, the, it sounds yeah. so crisp, so like with a punch. And yes, obviously the, the riff is like the really big famous thing here. Like people, it's like an iconic guitar riff. Mm-hmm. I mean. So yeah, that that guitar riff, like it's 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 the start of the show. It's I mean it's Jimmy Page, he's on the video. But I have to say though, the drums, oh my god, the mm. drums. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Holy, oh my god. I'm a former drummer. I don't know if that's it, but this the drum here to me is the start of the show. For me personally, I I mean, both are legendary, but come on, John Bunham's drums. I mean, it's just, yeah, I can't get yeah. over it. Like the thing about come with me is that, yes, it does directly sample cashmere is a classic. It's undisputed. But what I feel often gets unfairly claimed is that it's just puffy rapping over cashmere. Mm. But when you put them side by side like this, play cashmere and then play come with me. Come With Me is Cashmere Supercharged. They put a missile under this song and added two orchestras, a choir, and Tom Morello. Let's go, baby. Yes. I mean. <laughs> that's a thing. Uh, right, so if you found um, Tom Morello, mm-hmm. he actually gets invited. He performs, what was it, Sylv? Uh He's on bass, but there is actually a mix of the song called the Morello Mix, uh, which we'll have to play a clip of where he added some extra, extra sauce. Tom Morello has show yeah. up a lot on the podcast, sometimes front and center and sometimes hidden. He does a lot of like hidden work and soundtrack, which I love. And this That's is cool. not his only place. On the Godzilla soundtrack either. Correct. Yes, he shows uh, exactly. Up again. The other thing about this is Jimmy Page even says after the fact that all this stuff that Puffy added with the orchestras and the choirs and all of that, it was, he was so impressed in the, by the imagination and these new ideas that Puffy was bringing to the song. And I think a key choice that Puff Daddy made in making sure that Come With Me worked was involving Jimmy Page because it could have been hey, can I sample your song? Yes, here's the, you know, the rights and here we're mm-hmm. paying the, the fees for it. And that could have been it. But I think the visibility of Paige being involved in it was sort of like, he's got my, he's got my back, you know? It was like a, it was a Like pass. a stamp of approval too. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, it yeah. was the ultimate cosign, which I think Diddy needed um, when he's going to sample this song that is, he knows is going to piss off almost everyone that isn't already a fan of his and maybe see even some that are because at that point puffy had gotten into this sort of reputation of just sampling stuff Mm. and people i i feel like there was a lot of pushback on that but at the same time all these songs were working they were hits people loved them and this was just so bold and audacious to sample cashmere in this way you start with this big rock beat and then within seconds you hear what might be one of the most iconic hip-hop 
ad libs of all time? I don't know. I mean, that uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Who can you think of more iconic than Puff Daddy? Mm -hmm. Just like dropping these little ad libs on songs, like not actually rapping. Yeah. I think that at the time, the gut reaction was this is just ripping off. Yeah. uh, Or taking credit for something that isn't yours. Jackson, like you said, this he got the stamp of approval from Jimmy Page. This is definitely a collaboration and not just a sampling. Yeah. I want to say something about Jimmy Page. Well, and, and honestly, I don't even, I, I was thinking how, what can you say about Jimmy Page? Then? Yeah. But I did find something super cool. We talked about the legendary guitar riff. And I found this clip of, it's Jack White, legendary guitarist from White Stripes. Mm-hmm. The Edge, legendary guitarist from U2. And Jimmy Page, obviously a legendary guitarist from Led Zeppelin. And Page is talking about how he created that guitar riff for Kashmir. Yeah, here, I'll play a little bit. One song that I was kind of intrigued me was Kashmir. Where, where did that come That's from? Where did that, that rhythm and that feel? It originated from playing around on a tuning. Sounds like it's, it's pretty similar to like a, a, a sitar tuning, yeah, yeah, yeah. actually. There was this song I had called Swan Song, believe it or not. And it was all these parts and intricate guitar parts. And right at the very end of it, I had this, I had this thing which went like this. And then the tape ends. And I thought, well, we were doing some rehearsals. John Bonham was there. And I said, I've got this riff. So now I turned it round, starting with the first bit first. Right, yeah, yeah. And he lays the... Uh, and he lays on the rhythm on it. So. so yeah, that's pretty cool how sort of like the story, that's not even the best part. And I'm, and I'm sorry, this is an audio medium I can't show you, but if you see that clip, the look on Jack White and the Edge face when <laughs> Jimmy Page is playing that. And then the best thing also, they all have guitars. And I think the gimmick of this interview was that they all play together and they try to jam with him on this song. But the riff is so... Just iconic and so perfect. They, they can't really do anything. It sounds like a mess. They're, they're just like, what can you add to that here? I don't know if you can hear them try to jam, but it's like, what's going on? No. It's just like, no, they just sit back and be like, we, oh, what can we do? I mean, they set them up. What are you supposed to do with Kashmir? <laughs> right? Like, how do you? Yeah. I think that's what's genius about what. Puffy added into it is they found ways to kind of give it this full body with, you know, the orchestra and the the choirs and and the different layers you had. There's a moment I was almost going to use this as my my seven seconds, but I decided on something else. So I'll talk about it now. But there's a moment in the first hook, I think after the last time he says, come with me, where you you hear the orchestra part kind of swell down and it creates sort of like this like growl, like it's like a, like a shifting down. And it just, it, it, it shows so much like scope and size and it really feels like, oh, this is Godzilla. Yeah, mm-hmm. like this totally makes sense. And there's a few different moments like that as the, the song builds and builds and then, you know, breaks down into a bridge and then builds again that wasn't on the original. I was thinking something along this line, which is the most 90s thing about this movie might be rap reaching out to rock versus nowadays hip hop and rap are 
way more popular. So I'm yeah, I'm not saying that this was where it started because it certainly it certainly did not. But this was finding success right as the the rap rock sort of yeah. We uh, got- I guess when that was cresting and that was starting to come in because if you remember. A lot of that stuff found mainstream success on like Total Request Live and M- MTV, and that all that all came later in '98. Mm-hmm. I think TRL started at the end of '98, and so that was when you started to see like Corn and Limp Bizkit on all these all these groups that had been popular already. I think within rock audiences, sort of move outside of that and become mainstream to like pop audiences. And this kind of fit right into that lane as that was happening. Yeah. I'm curious, like how big of a role soundtrack has in that? Cause you're on an absolutely great train of thought because you mentioned those also JC and Linkin Park were on the cusp of that collaboration, but there's a soundtrack also judgment night, which is famously right. known as like, nobody even know what the movie's for, but it had these mm-hmm. like rock and rap collaborations and, this isn't my expert, expert expertise to uh, rap or hip hop, but it's one of the first, you know, like I don't, I can't say the first, but like it, it's not something super popular before that. You didn't see it left or right. So, yeah. yeah well, we, we touched in our Armageddon episode on the Run DMC and Aerosmith collaboration. Yeah, that yeah, feels so, like a really yes, early right, version yeah. of this. And I mm. know that rap, rock it's known the genre is known under many different names and maybe this is personal preference but i always feel like it's most successful when we're co- when it's a collaboration with a rock artist and a rap artist then we're getting Kinda, yeah, yeah you're, I, honestly you're right like the jc and linking parks beloved exactly the a uh on oh, the mc mm-hmm. one yeah but some of the bands you mentioned uh Limp jackson Biscuit, like yeah. have an yeah. h well or it's not highly regarded maybe they were a success at the time but i I think the exception to that might be rage against the machine if you want to put them in that category maybe they don't qualify Mm -hmm. um and they also appear on the soundtrack so yeah yeah question for you both but is puff daddy considered a good rapper is zitty considered a good rapper in that genre i have no idea i i don't think puff daddy's considered a good rapper i think puff daddy is considered a good performer musician, showman. I think that he brings like the, what we would call now swagger to a song. Whereas, you know, if you wanted to go with someone who from that era was more lyrical, you'd go with someone like Nas or Jay-Z or, you know, and actually Jay-Z might be a nice middle ground between Puff Daddy and Nas because he had the lyrics, but then he was not afraid to, you know, incorporate like flashy beats and, and sort of pop elements that uh, Puff Daddy was embracing wholeheartedly. As a producer or a showman, he really knows the music landscape. Like he he's incorporating cashmere into this song. He knows the pop landscape. And I think he for, for a long time, rap was not in the public or in, in the pop culture space. And I feel like he started incorporating it really well, really successfully. Mm-hmm. I, he just, he, he knows how to entertain. Yes. And yeah. he does it with this song. He does it with so many things. Here's something from the MTV making of that I found. And it just shows how, how Didi knows how to entertain. Also, how, how good of a hype man he is. 
But if I was Godzilla and I heard this, I'd be ready to eat some shit up. <laughs> You're there yeah. talking about the soundtrack. Like, come yeah. on, man. How, like, how can you say no to that? Yeah. One thing from that same interview, Paolo, is we learned how Diddy came across <laughs> Kashmir. Can you play the clip? One night I was sleeping. It was like um, four in the morning. And I sleep with the TV on. And I hear this commercial for Led Zeppelin's greatest hits. And I hear... You know, I hear that the riff come on. And I'm like... And I just wake up out of bed like... Oh, shit. And this reminded me of, well, first of all, that's a great story, but it also reminded me of falling asleep on the couch as a kid and waking up to whatever CD ad compilation (laughs) was on the TV. And I was wondering if you guys had any favorite commercials that you could remember. Uh, so that that experience was so relatable when I saw that clip. I I tweeted that out, first of all, because I want... (laughs) like a two hour documentary of the making of come with me with interviews with Jimmy and and Puff, because that was, that was so cool to hear that story. Uh, But also, I don't know if, if you guys had the, the pay-per-view channels as kids, but I remember at some point you're a channel, sometimes networks would go off the air at a certain point and it would Mm -hmm. become like the pay-per-view channel. And it would just show you like a scrolling menu of what you could order. And I remember waking up to like trailers for movies on the (laughs) pay-per-view channel. And that was definitely something I could relate to. Uh Um, So do you have, I mean, some commercials you remember? Oh, some of them are just embedded in my brain. Um, There was one called Ultimate Love Songs Collection. <laughs> Imagine owning the world's greatest uh, yes. love songs. God. I feel like I'm time traveling. The voices of our time. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine owning the world's greatest love songs. Like I don't, I don't doubt there's people out there that hear those songs, and when they hear the chorus, they think about the mix, like the next chorus that comes, and feel oh. weird that it, you don't cut to Michael Bolton singing. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. There was also a compilation from Anne Murray. What is this? So <laughs> you don't know. No one woke up to this. If you were asleep, you can't be asleep. What is singing her favorite songs of inspiration? You just call. Oh, that's a good song. It's Anne Murray's inspiration songs. And you know what? I've, I felt inspired. I think my parents actually had that CD. So they were inspired to buy <laughs> I'm it. I'm going to throw that car yeah. again. Is this Bay Area local programming? No, stop it. Anne Murray is a very famous singer. Uh. <laughs> um, and then the last one, like, remember the now Now, of craze? course. Yes. Yeah. Finally, something that was actually a thing. Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> now you can have all your favorite hits right what is here, this right, now. right now. Chart toppers from Casey and JoJo, Aqua, Brian McKnight, Janice, and Spice Girls. Yeah. He's so like, that was the first Now CD, and I think they're still going strong. I think they're still making them. Yeah, they've, they've got to have like Now 200. I think like thousand, <laughs> which is just yeah. a Spotify playlist now. But, Maybe yeah. um, my brother had a couple, and some of them were really good. Yeah. I, there was one specifically. Was it now two? I don't know, but one of them had like Britney Spears. Oops, I did, and like, like all the hits from that year. Oh yeah, 
I think I might discover who the Beatles were through this commercial. Stop. <laughs> you know, I need someone. <laughs> the Beatles won 79 minutes and 12 seconds that brought the That's world how you do a together. Wait, am I supposed to be scared? Like, why was his voice so intimidating? In a world where yeah. four <laughs> British guys got together yeah. from a band. <laughs> no, but I remember, like, I was like, remember watching the commercials, like, damn, all these songs are great. I don't want to move on to the music video just before I play two more sound bites from that MTV making of. Godzilla was like a, a hero. I liked him better than Superman. It was somebody you could relate to. You know what I'm saying? Superman, I couldn't really relate to. You know, a white man in tights flying around <laughs> saving the day. Well, well Diddy's uh, tapping into that something that the movie was lacking. You know, like yeah. the, Godzilla was just like an animal. It wasn't really a character. How how disappointed was Puff Daddy with the movie, man? man yeah, that's what I. That's the interview I want to hear. Is Me like too. a year after Godzilla came out, and he's like, man, <laughs> I, did, I I made a classic song for this movie. Well, he also made not just a song, but a masterpiece of a video. I think it's time to talk about this music video. Um, <laughs> So again, this is not a visual medium. So I want to do something for you guys, Jackson and <laughs> Sophie and everyone listening to. I'm just going to go through the plot of this music video. Cl close your eyes yes. and envision, <laughs> unless you're driving. Music video starts. Godzilla throws a bus at Puff Daddy's New York apartment, which, by the way, he was watching TV while wearing all leather black outfit. Like, that's how he just, like, hangs out. After the bus makes a giant hole in his apartment, he fucking starts rapping, screaming out to the city. Or maybe to Godzilla, too. He's definitely pretty pissed about the hole in the wall thing. And then a helicopter blows up in front of him, and it sends him back in a blaze of fire, knocks his ass <laughs> back into this, like, course-like looking elevator. Didi gets super pissed. He rips his leather jacket. He continues to rap even more anger. The elevator just goes rising up like, um, what was that right? Uh, the Twilight Zone. Oh, but the, the Tower opposite. of Terror. Yeah, <laughs> like Tower of Terror, but the opposite. So just going up, shooting up. The elevator rises to the ceiling so fat it, it breaks the ceiling and shoots up in the sky. It propels Didi out of the elevator <laughs> into the sky. And then Didi bursts into a shit ton of white pigeons. Like, like it's some kind of action movie and you're like what the fuck is going on and then he reappears with a cross assault and starts falling from the sky like some kind of fun angel dressed in all white suit by the way also apparently the, the shades must be glued to his head obviously mm -hmm. he continues falling slowly through New York as we see a shit ton of Sean Combs product placement in the New York buildings be <laughs> behind him <laughs> And he then slowly descends into the coolest transparent music stage, accompanied by an orchestra, you guessed it, wearing all white, also a sleeveless drummer rocking out the coolest transparent drum kit I've seen. <laughs> and then all hell breaks loose and Diddy just wraps the shit out of it. And then Godzilla shows up. Yeah, yeah. also Godzilla shows up and Diddy also unleashes some like show-stopping or weird, depending how... You think of it, dance moves for sure. I love this music video. Paolo, you neglected to mention my favorite part of the music video. Was it all the 
bad continuity at the end where <laughs> they they're they're cutting between all the shots and like I was doing a game seeing where the buttons of his shirt were because they're <laughs> buttoned up all the way, they're open all the way down, they're in between, and they're just cutting. They're like, oh, we don't give a No one's going to notice this shit. And it's like so. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. As long as the wind is blowing full speed, like that's all we care about. That's all we care about. But maybe you saw a version that cut out this opening scene. Wait, that what? That has nothing to do with the No, video. it begins with the bus. Nope. There is a scene. Of Diddy on a bed with a with a lovely lady. And, Sophie, what? Yes, and between the sheets is playing. They they just have the Eiley brothers playing. Then he he snaps awake, and you see him where you started, where he's in the leather outfit no watching shit. TV. So it's like this I think true. he was having a, a sex dream and then woke what up the to Godzilla. Hell? Jackson, this is true. <laughs> yeah, this is true. I How remember did, this because. Yeah. <laughs> I even thought when I saw it on YouTube the other day, I said, there's more to this, isn't there? I uh -huh. thought there was. Yeah. Oh, shit. Okay. Now I clicked on the second YouTube, which is HD. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to watch that. <laughs> it might be the first one which said something like uh, on sensor or something. Oh, but I was... OK. So maybe they, they cut it because it was oh too my... sexy. Oh, my God. But... <laughs> well, holy shit. This. Wait, wait, oh my, you just, but you just blew my mind. Sorry. I, keep I going love self. it because Diddy must have been like, everyone has to know that I fuck. So we need <laughs> a sexy part, even though it has nothing to do with this song or with Godzilla. And they were like, okay, we got you. We'll just put this in. I have a theory. You know, I always bring these half-baked theory. This isn't an even half-baked. This is <laughs> frozen from the fridge. But okay. The video is a recreation of how Diddy got the idea for the song. He was in his apartment, chilling, watching TV. In the Flatiron building, in the, obviously. Yeah, and he <laughs> hears, you know, the lead. He, was, he said on the behind the scenes thing, he was sleeping. Yeah. So maybe he was having a sex mm -hmm. dream. So that's why it's included. And he wakes up to the Led Zeppelin song, which this is maybe the bus that comes through the window. That's Led Zeppelin. And he gets the idea. And then the whole video, the craziness, it's like his journey to get the permissions from Led Zeppelin. Like, that's the making of the song. Like, all the crazy shit. Oh, you had me until that point. But I think that him waking up to the, <laughs> to the, the news of Godzilla attacking the city, like, if that, that's close enough. If I ever meet Puff Daddy, I'll ask him if the Godzilla video is a metaphor for how the song was. <laughs> that's my only yeah. question I care about. <laughs> Answerable questions. Yeah. Do we move on to answerable questions? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Answerable questions. Seven seconds in heaven. What seven seconds from the song gives you goosebump? Jackson, our guest goes first. What do you got? All right. So there's this moment after, I think I'm calling it the bridge, when we had this breakdown of the guitar and Jimmy Page is, you know, strumming softly and, and Diddy is doing his best, you know, his best impression of a rock singer. <laughs> And it reverts to the main beat with this choir of voices singing over it in the background. And every time I hear it, it just feels so uh, dramatic and indicative of what Puff was adding to this. It's, it's yeah, awesome. Chef's kiss. <laughs> that Phantom of the Opera style. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good one. Oh, that's all I'll have to say. Yeah. So, <laughs> Good what check. do you... Here, uh, play it first. No surprise, close your eyes. 
Yeah, so Paolo, I'm definitely picking up on those drums that you mentioned earlier. It just yeah. injects so much energy into it, and that's like where I really start to get hype. It's about halfway through the song. Jackson, mine was exact same seven seconds. I'm just gonna play really? it again. <laughs> oh, nice. That that choir, and then this is where the drums really start to get super funky. That that was like that's like kind of like the first feel that you get a little bit like a couple flavor. That eventually we that we end up with what Sophie played, which yep. is. We're building to that, yeah. Yeah, we use goosebumps here very accurately because yeah. that's good. Favorite lyric. Each host sheds light on their favorite lyric. Jackson, what do you got? Okay, so there's these two lines that come at separate parts in the song, but are kind of like bookends and kind of mirror each other. The first one was, uh, "Tell me lies, time flies. Close your eyes, come with me." And then the other one was later in the song when he says, "You can't run, you can't hide. No surprise. Close your eyes." And I just felt like those were, they just lead you into the, the chorus perfectly. The, I, I love those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And his delivery of them too are, yeah. Um, yeah. He, he knows the chorus is coming. He, he knows what his, yeah, he's doing. <laughs> yeah. Again, hype, ultimate hype, man. He, he's hype. Yeah, it's hype. So what do you got? Oh, man, yours were so much better than mine. Yeah. I don't really have a great reason for picking this line. <laughs> um, it's, you comprehend me. You want to end me. You offend me. It's drama, feel the trauma, come with me. Uh, I think that just the rhyming pattern really works for me here. That I, I like the way that those words sound together. Not going to lie, this lyrically, this is a bit of like a word soup <laughs> for me. Uh, it's easy for me to get lost in the song lyrically. Um, but I liked the way that these words sounded together. I have. I want to fight you. I'll fucking bite you. I can't stand nobody like you. Yeah. Come on. It's a Godzilla song. And yeah, he says, I'll fucking bite you. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Second choice, I had fuck my enemies, fuck my foes. Damn these hoes. You're stepping on my toes. Makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah. How's the song age well, Jackson? In my opinion, the song has aged incredibly well. And, and that's the thing that is the most frustrating about not being able to stream it nowadays because... Mm -hmm. I feel like this would just hold up really well. It's it's timeless in the way that in 1998, Cashmere was 23 years old. It was classic rock. In 2022, Come With Me is 24 years old. Wow. I think, right. the, I think the preciousness... <laughs> Give me a second. Give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think the preciousness of the sample has worn off a little bit. You can take it for what it is, which is, you know, it's a sample of a classic rock song. And now it's its own version of that. And when you listen to it now, I just feel like it's incredibly well-crafted. You can hear all of the time and instrumentation that was put into it. It's a well-produced record, especially when you listen to stuff that's made now. There's a lot of pop music that is just sort of paper thin. And you can just feel this really rich, rich instrumentation in the song. The song still sounds epic. It sounds larger than life. Yay, sure. good song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think now what we need is a sample of this song. For the Godzilla versus Kong sequel that's coming out next year or two years from now. There we go. I think that's what we need to keep the cycle going. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it. Hall of Fame moment. Who or what had their best moment in pop culture with this movie and our song? It could be anything. A person, a studio, a film, music, genre, a cloud, a cat, a duck, anything you want. <laughs> Jackson, do you have any Hall of Fame choices? Boy, I have a sh shit ton. We have a lot. Oh so. my gosh. <laughs> Well, for this one, I, I tried to be very specific and creative, and I think this is truly the apex mountain for Puff Daddy's ad lib. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I think it I is it. the yeah. star of the show. I think it's front and center. 
I think, you know, he said it many times in, in songs before and after this, but it feels like it's its own little instrument that he's using. So I'm going to go with that. I thought of one, but I think I have to retract it. I was going really? to say best rapper and rocker collaboration, but I think I like Numb Encore more from Linkin Park and Jay-Z. So I have to retract it. Yeah. yeah. How about you, Paolo? I have a lot. CDR work. The CD features Godzilla's eye. It's look, it looks rad as hell. It's always looked rad as hell. <laughs> I love it playing it on the CD player back then. Still enjoy it. It looks great. There's also a vinyl that looks really cool. A green vinyl sold out. It, I saw it on Discogs. I just Googled it. $700 um, sealed. So, yeah. That Rarity. Must, that must pain you. <laughs> we mentioned Taco Bell a lot. So, I have to say <laughs> Hall of Fame for Taco Bell cups or Taco Bell marketing. Yeah, I kind of miss that chihuahua. Well, not. I mean, I, I also <laughs> movie tie-ins, I should say. Fair. Yeah. Is it screaming and anger in soundtrack songs? Is this the angriest soundtrack song or, or the screaming? You guys think Buff Daddy's screaming or not? Might be up there. Huh. Maybe for soundtracks, but in terms of music, there are entire genres devoted to how angry someone <laughs> can be. So I don't think that this quite makes that level. <laughs> I know. It's just, I guess the thing why this, you're probably right. Like it's mm -hmm. not, but this popped into my head just because it's so uncalled for, you know, and also the music video. He's so pissed throughout the whole music video. I don't know. He has so much energy, especially when he gets to that stage. He rips stage his jacket with... off. He's like, <laughs> yeah. I got fucking blown by this helicopter. Yeah. I'm pissed. Okay. I think this might also be the Hall of Fame for a most polarizing sample used mm. in a hip hop song. Because it's, it's also like the people who love it, love it. And then the people who don't like it are like, I'm offended. This is sacrilegious. You're going to sample Led Zeppelin. So That's I'm going to throw that in there. But like you said earlier, I definitely think that that's more a product of the time. I don't think people would really bat an eye now at a sample like this. Yeah. Well, we're going to we're going to test that in my my remix. Ooh, OK. Is this the best drums opening, only drums opening to a song? Hall of Fame? Whoa. It's not. I just thought it was a good way to like yeah. talk about that because I love it. Now, um, that's a polarizing question. I have some picks. I have Hot for Teacher, Van Halen. Huh? Like, look at that. It sounds like war. He's at war with the drums. This is pretty good. Shit. Oh, my God. Try to play I mean, that back. This is back. a whole oh. solo. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. Fucking epic. <laughs> Radiohead? Uh, Reckoner? The groove. Um, well, for me, Blink-182 came to mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's... Definitely. Uh, um, which actually, one? There's a couple, actually. Well, I, yeah, I was actually thinking about this, and then they kept coming and coming, and it's pretty much all my favorite ones. It's First Date. Um, and then also Feeling This. Yeah, that's a... Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then also, I miss you. It's maybe not as successful as the other options, but it's a classic. Jackson, do you have anything that comes to mind? 
Yeah. So two of them that popped up in my mind. First was um, My Hero by Foo Fighters. Oh, yeah. I believe it was also, I think that was featured on the Varsity Blues soundtrack. Yep. Throwing the football. I don't want yep. your life. Bum, 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 yeah. Bum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The other one, I think this is my number one, is Two Princes by the Spin Doctors. Yes, of course. Also, I think featured in So I Married an Axe Murderer. Love that movie. Super underrated movie, by the way. And I can keep going on and on. I have. I love how you proposed this as a Hall of Fame moment. And now we're just disproving it over and over again. <laughs> no, it's not. Clearly it's not. But like Blue Monday by New Order. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Different vibe from the ones we've been mentioning. Yeah. I mean, there's so many. Like even even new one. Um, Chamber of Reflection by Mark DeMarco. Slow, but oh, that feel, and then the oh my god, um, uh, YouTube, you still have more YouTube in the sky. Ooh, on that bit, yeah. Uh, look, hit us up on social. Let's keep this thing going. What are your favorite? Drum solo opening. I want to hear all of them. I got more. Um, no. Remix with today's current artist or band. Who will be your choice if this movie came out and the song came out? Who's going to be? Jackson, start with you. Okay, so given what we already discussed about sort of the reaction and the buildup and everything of the Led Zeppelin Puff Daddy connection, I felt like to remake this song and the spectacle that you have to have with someone who's a part of rock royalty coming in and working with someone who's legitimately respected in hip-hop circles. I put together Dave Grohl and Kendrick Lamar working together and creating a new hip-hop song, and they have to sample Smells Like Teen Spirit. Oh, so okay. It's, okay. it's going to piss off some people. Uh-huh. And I think it's going to have the same kind of audacity and the energy that Come With Me has. Oh, I love that. So I've mentioned the podcast that until this day, I don't like any use of Smells of Things Spirit. I don't think they pull that off. However, you do have two strong ingredients. I like where you're going. I just... I have to I have to hear before signing it off because because it, it's been butchered so much. Uh, smells like Tim right. Spirit so much, but but in Dave Grohl's hands, yes, exactly, with exactly. Lamar. That's the key. Remember yeah. collaboration, the right. sign off, and the involvement. Yeah, I like. I, yeah, I, I, so I, yes, I the, like it, Jackson. Yeah. The hope is that the Nirvana purists will say, "Okay, Dave has signed off on it. He's he's got my uh, my support." So and and. I went with that because I feel like that that's really the same level of like rock royalty as as Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. 
Well, mine was a little bit similar to Jackson's. I also chose Kendrick Lamar as the rap element. Um, But then with that previous question getting me on the Blink-182 train, I thought Travis Barker. I could see it. Yeah. I mean, he's he's super relevant right now. He's he's popping up. I would have been more confident if we hadn't seen that Travis Barker and Steve Aoki of karate in the pandemic. You're just being a hater. (laughs) It was like, no, I'm joking. Yeah. All right. Then what's yours? I didn't do something you guys did. I did not pick. I thought we were just sticking with cashmere, which which is fine. It's fine. I, I, I I'm not saying that was a rule. I just didn't think about that. You guys went a step above, which is great. Amazing. So I just picked the same cashmere, but like, who will be one? I picked Bad Bunny. <laughs> I would love to see Bad Bunny rapping over cashmere. Also, he just played Madison Square Garden. Ah. Mm-hmm. Blew it out. Like, if you see that mm-hmm. performance, it's, it's, it's insane how many people are there, how, how they're into it. Oh, my God. I think he's the number one streaming artist right now, just like Diddy and his time. He was yeah. ruling the 97. Bad Bunny, I think. If they were doing this song today, they probably would choose Machine Gun Kelly, but I, I don't want to hear that song. So, Moving on, WTF, a moment from the movie or song that made you think, what the fuck, Mike needed a second opinion. I mean, we can do the whole movie here. Uh, let's just start. Let's see. Jackson, what do, you, what do you have, if you have any? Okay. As some people may know, Siskel and Ebert didn't give... Roland Emmerich's movies, the best reviews. I think even prior to Godzilla, they had given him some, you know, sideways reviews and comments, things that he was not happy about. And Roland Emmerich held a grudge (laughs) to a degree that he named two of the characters in Godzilla after Siskel and Ebert and made one of them a, you know, an annoying mayor who's addicted to chocolate. And I felt like the stuff in the movie about Siskel and Ebert was incredibly petty and just didn't really serve the plot in any way. And even Siskel and Ebert, they thought it was kind of like a half measure. They're like, you didn't even kill us. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, you should have had Godzilla stomp on, on Mayor Ebert and his, his uh, campaign manager. Oh my God, I didn't, but even that didn't happen. So I, didn't even I, don't know. I thought that didn't age well. You're right. Wow, it should have been like the biggest death in the in the movie. Like, yeah, be killed so by anyway, one of those like flying thing. fishes that he ate or something like really stupid. Like fish hits him in the face or some shit like that. Yeah, and and if you notice when his campaign manager, whose name is Gene, finally ditches him, mm-hmm. he said he gives him a thumbs down. And I was just like, <laughs> right, come on, you're right, man. yeah, uh, come on, God, I, I I don't know how we can follow that up, but Sophie, Honestly. unfortunately, it's your. I think I said all I needed to say earlier. I, I, I robbed from my own question or my own answer, um, but it was the casting decisions. Like everybody in this film is miscast, I think, genuinely, except maybe Hank Azaria. Other than that, no. I think John Renault could have worked with another cast. Yeah, I think John Renault was the most underutilized. And I, I even liked some of the things that he did. Like when he was, uh, he said that the French guys were chewing their gum because it made them look more American. <laughs> I thought that was funny. That was funny. Mine just comes that same MTV behind the scenes. We have three other music videos actually for the soundtrack, which is a lot. Three music videos for a soundtrack. And Jamiro Kwai talks about his first approach for his song, but got re- rejected because he wanted to sing about how Godzilla kills. For some reason, the studio didn't go for that. Crazy, huh? <laughs> I had an idea in my head that, of course, you know, 
My line was Godzilla, he's a killer, but <laughs> they didn't dig that. Oh, wait, I got one. Calling Godzilla he. Oh. Definitely not a not a not a male. Yeah, you're right. It yeah. it reproduces asexually, so I mean Yeah. Definitely neither. To be continued, should we revisit this movie and talk about other songs in the soundtrack? This usually has been a no. I'm just going to lead it off by saying, hell yes. Really? Of course, this whole soundtrack, that's a thing. Like, it's hard with the format of the podcast when we have a soundtrack like this with, like, so many other stuff to cover. But here, I'm just going to play, like, a couple. Uh, the Wallflowers cover of, he- of David Bowie's Hero. Jimmy Require, that was the other music video, too. Mm-hmm. Really fucking weird music video. Rage Against the Machine. Ben Folds 5 Air. Ben Folds. Running Knees by Days of the New. A really boring song called Macy Day Parade (laughs) by Michael (laughs) Penn. The band Feel would walk the sky. A great original song by Foo Fighters, A320. The aforementioned remix that Jackson mentioned, Brain Stew by Green Day. I dig it. Yeah, it's Brain Stew. It's just, this is Untitled by Silverchair. The song is called Untitled. Are you gray, are you the band Fussbubble with Albert. <laughs> a great song, but doesn't really fit with the soundtrack, Undercover by Joey Deluxe. Yeah, some really great I, songs there. Some really great songs, but I don't want to talk about this movie again. <laughs> need to try to find a way jackson what do you think should we re- is this should be to be continued well yeah there's quite a few songs in there that i think could merit discussion but like sophie's saying you gotta you gotta dig in with someone else on uh, godzilla again because <laughs> man it's a mess of a movie but i mean no shelter might be yeah one of my top three rage songs oh sure and i think good. i think it might be their only original song for a soundtrack i'm not i'm not positive but I think like cause the Matrix, they had uh, Wake Up, which yeah. was an already existing song. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, No Shelter is awesome. And I think this is the only place it shows up. My yeah. biggest pet peeve with the soundtrack is that track number four, No Shelter by Rage Against the Machine, where you just mentioned. Absolute banger. Track number five, Air, Ben Folds 5. The biggest downer, like the yeah. shit. It's a good song. <laughs> it's just like you're rocking and then it comes with this like piano. I even put it on the mix yeah. that I played like that. So you feel the, the what the f- is going on with this change. But uh, it's uppers and downers, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Last question. Will the song go on? Will the song live on and continue to be part of pop culture? Jackson, I'll start with you. I think it'll always have some kind of impression for good or for bad, uh, simply because it's such a bold and audacious choice to say, yeah, I'm Puff Daddy. I'm going to make a song for this new Godzilla movie. And guess what? I'm going to sample Led Zeppelin. Try and stop me. And that, that is the song in a nutshell for me. And I just think 
it's it's also a song that's just kind of synonymous with the movie. Like you hear the song, you think of Godzilla, but the song itself doesn't get drugged down by the legacy of the movie. I think it still works. So what do you think? Yeah, I agree. But the only element is that I don't know if the younger generations know Diddy as a rapper. And it's not on streaming, like we've said. It it for some reason it's just never been available. No. And um I don't know how many opportunities there are gonna be for people who didn't grow up with this movie to find it and the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think could be. I think it will continue to go on for the near future. I'm curious 15 or 20 years down the line, like how relevant it will be. I, I I don't know. Maybe that's too harsh of a critic to be like, well, you can apply 20 to 20 years a lot, 15 to 20 years a lot of things and all. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe the Led Zeppelin connection, because Led Zeppelin is going to go on for yeah. a long time. Godzilla <laughs> yeah. movies will always apparently be a thing. Keep, they keep making them. So maybe. Yeah, I hope that the Led Zeppelin connection is always like, well, it's a footnote on Cashmere. So people will be like, oh, exactly. I love Cashmere. And they're like, did you ever hear what they did with this? Yeah. And then they turn on to that, you know. That's fair. Yeah. All right, Sophie, time for YouTube comments. Did you find anything good for us? I did. Okay, so here's the first one. I think they had a bigger budget for this music video than the actual film. Yes. Kind of. That, exactly. Yeah. You know? And <laughs> here's an interesting one. This might be my biggest guilty pleasure song ever. As a huge Led Zeppelin fan, I should hate this, but I just can't, LOL. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of people that feel that way. Like, yeah. in the difference between, you can see on the YouTube comments, it was way different from when we cover Immigrant Song by Trash Dressner, where everyone, the Led Zeppelin fans were like, yo, this is really good. I can't, I can't be a troll right now. I gotta say, it's pretty hard to be a troll. This is really good. With this one, it's not like that. It's not a consensus. So I can yeah. see how, how <laughs> some people will be like, eh, I'm going to hide to listen to this. <laughs> okay, last one. Two of the things from the 90s I miss most. Absurdly over-the-top rap videos and the fact that damn near every movie had a hit song attached to it. And what? to that I say, I have a podcast for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Wait, are hip-hop videos not over-the-top nowadays? Um, not like this. <laughs> I mean, what is like this though? <laughs> I, I don't think every every hip hop song gets a, a video nowadays. That's the problem. Yeah. I think No Way Out, the, the Puff Daddy album 97, he had four music videos. Like, did Victory have a music video? That one I can't remember. But Yeah, Victory yeah. had like an over the top video, a video for, what was it? Feels So Good with Mace and Been Around the World was... A huge video. Yeah. It's all about the Benjamins. I mean, yeah, yeah. Every every song of his had a big old video. Yeah, that I year. think you mentioned five. Then five music videos from that album. Shit, shit. This is so much fun. That's a wrap for I guess. Come with me, Jackson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for picking up this. This is fun, even though the movie sucked. It's still <laughs> really fun. Um, again, I want to remind people that you are a must follow on Twitter. Like you're one of my favorite accounts. It's just, you got to go follow. But like, apart from Twitter, like anywhere else that people can find your expert um, 90s movies knowledge. Most, <laughs> mostly what I'm doing is, you know, I'll do podcasts here and there. So I've, I've done mostly movie uh, podcasts. I think the only other uh, soundtrack or music related podcast I've done was I was on um, Soundtracker a couple months back with uh, Eric Peacock. We did the uh, Men in Black soundtrack. 
Mm. Um, so done that. And then, um, yeah, I've been on uh, an episode of Film Feast with Mad Blood. So we, we just talked about Sudden Death, the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. Great. And then I got a couple more uh, couple more podcasts coming up in the next couple of months with um, Uncut Gems podcast. And we're going we're gonna to be talking about movies as well. So. Yeah, if you if you like the the nonsense that I'm tweeting on on Twitter, I'm you know I'm I'm love connecting with others who love movies and pop culture on there. So it's at Jackson Boren. Shit, Jackson. So what you're saying is literally that's what podcasters do. They just drop on a helicopter and just enlist your services every time we need like that expertise. That's what you got going <laughs> yes. on, man. Absolutely. What a flex, man. What an achievement. <laughs> So thanks again, as always, your amazing research and writing on this episode. Thank you. This was a fun one. Yeah, this was really yeah, fun. Yeah, this has been a blast. Yeah. And last and most importantly, thank you for everyone for listening to the pod. Thanks for everyone for their support. It's been a great. Our Patreons, ah, love you guys. Thank you for helping us grow this podcast. Please connect with us on please connect with us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok at the song will go on. And if you found us because of our feature on Apple Podcasts, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for supporting a baby podcast. <laughs> yes, very independent yeah. podcast. But hey, we're just starting this ride. We have so much planned for the pod. Every Tuesday, new episodes. Throwing the kitchen sink on <laughs> Patreon. Give you cool perks, extra content. And if you like what you hear, a rating on Apple Podcasts goes a long way for us. And make sure you come back to hear more every Tuesday. Yeah, we're just tackling this podcast like Puff Daddy tackles a movie song. <laughs> yeah, all out. <laughs> See you guys on the next song. Bye. The song will go on is written, researched, and produced by Sophie Matano and Paolo Grassi. Theme music is composed by William Russell. Consulting producers are JP Lee and Jonathan Fisher. Recording, editing, and mixing by Sophie Matano and Paolo Grassini. The song will go on. It's a Gigawatts podcast. You can find Gigawatts on YouTube and on Instagram at gigawatts underscore YouTube.